Father, we thank you that we can sing your praises. We can make declarations in our singing and praying as well. And as we sang this morning, we declared to you that we would rely upon your word as opposed to other things. And so, Father, would you teach us now and open our hearts, our minds together as we worship you in learning. Reveal more of yourself to us, more of our need of you to us, and make this time fruitful in helping us become more like your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen? Well, last week, we began a new series studying the book of Psalms. And uh, last week, I said that the Psalms can be thought of, or divided up, really, in three ways. We talked about there being Psalms of orientation, there are Psalms of disorientation, and then there are Psalms of reorientation. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a psalm of orientation. This is a psalm that tells us how things really are, how life really works. And so it tells us what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is blessed, what is not blessed, what is cursed. That's a psalm of orientation. That's what a psalm of orientation does. It orients us to how life actually really works how the universe came into existence, or how we got here, or who we are, or what we are supposed to do, or what we are supposed to be, or who oversees it all, and to whom we are accountable. A psalm of orientation gives us vital information. And Psalm 1, which is the psalm we're looking at, is a psalm of orientation. And before we read it, let me just start by asking you a question that kind of sets up part of the subject of this psalm. And here's the question. Do you think we are happier today than people were 100 to 200 years ago? Well, you know, we certainly know more stuff today about a lot of different things uh, than our ancestors did. You know, we have more stuff today than our ancestors had. We have more technological advantages. We have airplanes and we have cars to drive to get us where we want to go. We have refrigerators smart TVs, smartphones, smart light bulbs, smart doorbells, smart thermostats, smart homes. We have greater varieties of food available to us. They get shipped to us from other parts of the country, other parts of the world. Uh, We have more safety controls, arguably maybe too many. Uh, We have better medications, better vacation opportunities. But I wonder, are we happier Philip Yancey, who's a popular Christian author, and I've read some of Philip Yancey's books, and I've actually really enjoyed them. He makes the observation that when he reads the journals and the diaries of men and women living generations ago, he thinks they were less, um, they, they experienced less boredom than we do. They experienced less meaninglessness in life, a sense of purposelessness. They experienced Uh, less self-centeredness, less self-pity, you know, inward focus, less despair, less depression than at least what he observes in the world around him today. Now, that's just one guy's opinion. But what do you think? I think it would be pretty difficult to make the case that we are happier today than our ancestors were. The Bible says some interesting things about all of this. It says that human happiness 
uh, really has nothing to do whatsoever with things like technological advancements or scientific discoveries or discoveries in biochemistry or uh, improvements in healthcare or studies in sociology or psychology or increases in creaturely comforts. All these things are great. I mean, maybe they do make the world better or maybe they do make it safer. Maybe they do make it a cleaner place to live. But the Bible has always said that what a human being, uh, but what makes a human being truly happy versus unhappy or satisfied versus unsatisfied or fulfilled versus unfulfilled, or successful versus unsuccessful, has more to do with things that are deeply and profoundly spiritual than anything else, anything else. And that is the argument that the Bible makes. I, uh, I hope nobody here thinks that questions about human happiness are trivial. That, that's actually what occupies the mind, the energy, and the effort of human beings perhaps more than anything else, and not just in our time, but in every time. Aristotle said that happiness is the issue of life. He went on to say that our happiness depends entirely on ourselves. And eh, we'll find out that's wrong. <laughs> the Dalai Lama. Why the Dalai Lama? I don't know. I just found this quote, and I thought it was interesting. <laughs> the Dalai Lama says the purpose of our lives is to be happy. Interesting. It's also interesting to me that when you read, whether psychology books or sociology books, political science books, history books, theology books, they all eventually get to talking about the problem of human happiness. How can a person be happy? And they all have theories about that. And Psalm 1 has some very interesting things to say to us about this subject of happiness. Let's read it. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked they are like chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's interesting, I think, that the very first psalm in the book of Psalms raises the question of happiness. The question of living a blessed life. The very first psalm tells us that happiness is possible. Amen? That's a good thing, right? It says, blessed is the man. And blessed, of course, can be translated in different ways. Joyful is the man. Happy is the man. Satisfied. Shalom is, is what the, the blessed individual, man or woman, has. Blessed is the man who does not do certain things, but instead does others, says this psalm. And that's kind of a staggering statement, actually. If you wonder why, you're either young or naive. One or the other. Let me explain. Almost all of us usually, uh, unless we've had a really, say, difficult, very difficult childhood, almost all of us start out in life thinking that happiness is just a natural outcome of living life, right? 
that if I just do life correctly, if I do it the right way, if I work hard, if I happen to get to marry the right person, if I parent correctly, happiness will be the outcome. It's just natural. We think, well, well, sure, there are lots of people around me. They're out there. They aren't happy, but they've screwed up somehow. That's where we kind of start when we're young, when we're naive. But as time goes on, we change after experiencing more of life. We come to see that happiness is a whole lot harder to come by than we might have first imagined. Uh, After a while, we even begin to see that the most successful people, as the world might define that, the most experienced people, perhaps even the most gifted people are also the most cynical people, often the most unhappy people. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who we're told is, was one of the wisest individuals to ever live, writes these words. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Sounds like a happy guy, right? (laughs) But the thing is, all great literature, really, all great literature of the world is more often than not tragic literature. Dostoevsky, Brothers Karamazov, uh, Crime and Punishment, if you've ever read either of those. It's a tragic, tragic tale. Uh, Tolstoy, War and Peace. Tried listening to that once, didn't get all the way through it, but uh, figured out, oh, that's a book I've got to read if I really want to, because listening to it wasn't working. Too many Russian names, but tragic. Shakespeare, you got Hamlet, you got Macbeth. Now, it's true, Shakespeare wrote different kinds of plays and different kinds of works. He, he wrote comedies, he wrote histories, he wrote tragedies. But you tell me, which is more true to life? I just uh, read his comedy, Much Ado About Nothing. It's a romp, it's, it's fun, it's quite funny. In the end, every problem is resolved. Every person is in love and every villain has been captured and, and everybody is happy. It's a really happy ending. In Hamlet, not so much. In the end, everybody dies, right? Everybody's disappointed and if, if they didn't die, they're disappointed. And we need literature like Much Ado About Nothing to laugh, to get through life together. It's wonderful. But honestly, when you read or experience a play like Hamlet or Macbeth, something inside you knows that you've just experienced a far more realistic portrayal of what life is actually like. It's often sad. Life is often tragic. Daniel was up here praying about some of the tragic things that are happening in our world right now. Things you can't deny and can't dismiss. You remember in Macbeth, after Macbeth hears about his wife uh, having died, he says some very famous words. He says, life's but a walking shadow 
A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? It's bleak. But if we're being honest, often life feels that way. Things like that blow into all of our Lives And here's the deal. The people who see the most deeply into life, the people with the most life experience, oftentimes the smartest people, the people with the most money or the most fame or, or the most success, the people that you think would be therefore the most happy are very, very often the most cynical. And the point is we start out thinking that happiness is natural. We wind up believing that it's almost unachievable. And if you think about it, there really are just basically four kinds of people. People who think that happiness is natural. And again, as I said, if you think that, you're probably young. You probably haven't experienced a lot of life. Or you've had a remarkable run of luck. Or there are people who think that happiness is unachievable. And very often, these are people that have been highly successful. Uh, and they're overachievers, but they're also skeptics. They're also cynics. There are people who stay busy enough not to think about any of this. But what happens even to them is that life reaches up and grabs them. Something truly wonderful happens or something truly awful. And all of a sudden they're forced to think about themselves and their lot in life. And then lastly, there are people who understand deeply, I think, what the Bible says. And one of those people is described right here in Psalm 1. Christians who understand what the Bible says know that happiness is neither natural nor unachievable. It's possible. It's possible even in this fallen, broken world to be a fundamentally, consistently happy person. So the question you should be asking, well, if that's so, then why are so few people seemingly happy? And the answer is simple. Uh, we, we simply seek it wrongly. Uh, people make two very common mistakes when it comes to this thing of being blessed and, and being happy. First, real happiness, the happiness that God offers, is not a superficial happiness. It's a fundamental or soulful kind of happiness. This psalm tells us that the, happy, uh, that the real happy or blessed individual is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. And that's interesting. That's a really terrific metaphor, in fact, because this tree, this man, is subject to seasons. It's not always being fruitful. It's not always blossoming. It's subject to winter. It's subject to dry summers. This, this tree feels the change of seasons, and yet this particular tree is not like other trees because it's been planted near a stream, a riverbank, if you will. And so what it does is it sends down roots, and its roots have access to a constant supply of water and nutrients. And so regardless of drought, regardless of the change of seasons, regardless of circumstances, this tree has exactly what it needs. And what it needs has nothing to do with shifting and changing circumstances or seasons. The first major mistake that people make is that we try to find our happiness in our circumstances. We do everything we can to orchestrate, control, prevent certain things from happening and certain things we want to happen. 
We look for happiness in externals. We experience happiness. Uh, we expect happiness to come raining down on us because of our trying to control those circumstances. The Bible says if you seek your happiness in externals or circumstances, you will be a deeply disappointed person because real happiness is found under you or it's found inside you. It's to be found where your roots are. Happiness is never to be found in what's happening to you, but in who you are and in who you are becoming. If you are a deeply unhappy person, it has everything to do with who you are, not just what's happening to you, understand. There's a guy named Frederick Langbridge. He's an English clergyman, but he wrote a lot of poetry in the mid-1800s. And one of his lines uh, became quite famous. I'm sure you've all heard it. I'm kidding. But uh, in the midst of one of his poems, he says, Two men looked out prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. He was making a good point with that little couplet. Both men experienced the same circumstances, but saw things very differently. And the question, of course, is why the difference? And the difference has something, uh, had to do with something inside them, something to do with where or what in they were rooted. You see, a Christian is not just some religious person believing theoretical kinds of things or being a nice person or a person uh, doing good deeds. Fundamentally, a Christian, a Jesus follower, is someone who is rooted and grounded in God. Something other, something bigger than him or herself. The Apostle Peter tells us, he said, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness, for living, you see. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Everything we need to live fruitful lives, lives that matter. Everything we need to live a life of obedience to him we have been given. He says, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. Something else that is a gift given to the person who follows Jesus. Precious promises about our future. So that through them, the precious promises, you may participate in the divine nature. In other words, you can be like God. You can be godly. You can live holy lives. And he says, escape, and this is key, escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see, there's corruption in the world. There's corruption in us. And salvation is all about escaping that corruption. How? By following Jesus, by seeking to honor God and obey God and follow him. We escape the corruption in the world. Corruption is simply the, the broken, decaying ways of thinking and acting that we see in the world all around us. And sometimes we see this in us as well. It's broken and decaying ways of thinking and acting. That's the corruption of the world. Now, you see, all of that gets changed in a human being when a human being comes alive spiritually. The Bible talks about this and calls it being born again. Jesus told a man one time, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can understand what God is up to unless he is born again. Jesus was saying to know God, to live in his kingdom, uh, to live abundantly, to, to see the kingdom of God, a person must become someone new, must become someone different 
must become spiritually alive, you see. A person must get rooted and grounded in God. It's the picture of the tree planted by the streams of water. So that we can yield fruit in season and survive times of drought. And it says in verse 2 that when we live our lives this way, what happens is we prosper. I don't think that means get rich. I think that just means we flourish as human beings. We are who we are supposed to be. Being rooted and grounded in God, in His law, in His word is what gives us power and knowledge and precious promises and perspective that wasn't there before we were rooted and grounded in God. Something I discovered in Psalm 1 that I hadn't really thought about before is that this tree does go through seasons. Did you notice that when we read it? This, pre, this tree experiences different, different seasons. Presumably, some of those are difficult. Some maybe are not. Some are times of bearing fruit. Some are uh, challenging times. The point is the tree here is not always bearing fruit. But notice, too, even when it's not bearing fruit, fruit verse 3 says its leaf does not wither. It doesn't dry up. It's what the Apostle Paul describes when he was writing to uh, a church. Uh, he said, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, spiritually made alive, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. See, that's what a Christ follower lives with, great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. That's what happens in this corrupt world, change and decay. But this, these promises, this inheritance that we have is kept for us safely so that it will be there. It says, and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly happy, be truly glad, we are told. There's wonderful joy ahead, he writes. Even though you must endure many tri trials for a little while. So, you know, he, what Peter is saying to these individuals to whom he's writing is, you know, there, there are trials, yes, but there are promises. There's an inheritance. These things are being kept safe. So, yes, there are trials, but there's also always joy. Deep rejoicing, deep trials, how can that be? Well, it's, it's the metaphor that we have right here in Psalm 1. A tree not bearing fruit because it's in a season of fruitlessness, a season of difficulty, maybe a season of even hurting. But even there, its leaf isn't withering or dying. It's still flourishing. Its roots are sunk down deep into something bigger, something stronger than itself. And a lot of people don't get this, even people in churches. People in churches sometimes will uh, act like tragedy or disappointment or difficulty or hardship or sickness or suffering or disease uh, are not supposed to happen to people who follow Jesus. I've had many of these conversations with Christians that had been taught or were learning that they were supposed to live in victory because Jesus gives them victory, right? Amen. Hallelujah. But the victory they were looking for was victory from disease. If you're sick, you don't have enough faith. If you're not prospering financially, you're not trusting God the way you should be trusting him to bless you. There's a name for this, prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel. I, I would call it a denial gospel because it denies the reality of the world in which we live, which is corrupt. 
It denies the corruption that is actually in us. The, the corruption that Jesus has come to fix and did gain the victory over, but we won't really experience that victory until he returns. Not really, not fully. I would say to live that way is not only radically unbiblical, it's also terribly unhealthy. If you find Christians going through tragedies trying to deny them or trying to uh, ensure themselves and everyone around them that these tragedies will all go away, if they're not shedding any tears, if they're living without grief, if they're claiming a victory that never comes, that, that's not God's peace and that's certainly not God's joy. That's just denial of some kind. You see, the tree here in Psalm 1, because it's going through a season of dryness, has to pull up from the bottom even more. It has to sink its roots down even deeper. And when it does, what it finds is what it needs to survive, even thrive, uh, and to move through trials or difficult seasons. And that's happiness at a much deeper level than just circumstances. Uh, this tree finds that it can rejoice in the midst of trial. It can flourish in the midst of dryness. And that's what Peter was writing about. Christian happiness is something that comes from deep, deep down. It's not lightheartedness or giddiness. It's not a lack of pain or a lack of trial. Happiness or blessedness is something that God gives us regardless of our circumstances. It's a sufficiency that we find in Christ, in Christ alone. It's Jesus' ability to strengthen me, to uphold me in times of difficulty uh, and in times that are good as well. And so we see first, happiness is possible. We see second, that happiness is not to be found by controlling or changing our circumstances, but by determining our allegiances, right? Who or what are we actually rooted in? But the third point is happiness can never be gotten by directly pursuing something like happiness itself. And this is a point that's made in many places in God's word. Happiness or blessedness is always a byproduct of what I've been mentioning, of seeking something bigger, something better than happiness itself. Jesus didn't come and say to his disciples, blessed or happy is he who seeks happiness. He didn't say blessed or happy is the one who hungers and thirsts after happiness. And that's why Aristotle is wrong. That's why the Dalai Lama is wrong. Jesus said, blessed or happy is he who hungers and thirsts after something more than blessedness. And he gets specific about this. Now, right here, friends, is precisely why so many Christians are not more happy. Many of us come to Jesus hoping, saying, oh, finally, finally, here's, here is someone who, who loves me. They're going to make me happy. They're going to give me the things that I, I want. And so we follow him up to a point. We listen to his teaching. We delight in his law. We obey it until, until we aren't getting what we want. Until Jesus takes us in a direction we don't want to go. Until Jesus asks us to obey him, which means that we must die to ourselves. And then we start listening to the counsel of the wicked. Or we start standing in the way of sinners. Or we start sitting in the seat of mockers or scoffers. These are all descriptions of the same thing, of people who do not believe in, do not trust God and his word. They do not uh, wish to obey him. And so what is offered is another path to joy. And so we are counseled to disobey and to disregard God and his word and to see how silly it is. They mock it. And they offer us, as I said, a different path to happiness. And unfortunately, what is promised here are things that can never, ever be delivered. 
And what this is really is it's our culture. It's our society, the culture and society in which we live. It's every culture and every society that mocks God, counsels wickedness. You know, when I have had the privilege to counsel young couples wanting to get married, in recent years, I would observe, the uh, last 10 or so perhaps, uh, these couples are almost always living together, uh, even if they profess faith in Jesus. They're, they've already begun to live together, and at some point in the conversation and the sessions that we have, we always get around to that question, so why are you living together? And I get the usual answers, you know, we wanted to see if we were right for each other, are we compatible, and can we make it work and all, and I always try to point out that living together without making covenant promises is, is actually just living in sexual sin is what it is. You know, God is not a prude. Christians are not anti-sex, just want to be clear about this. About 30 of my family are sitting over here. Holly and I <laughs> have had sex before. God uh, made sex, and God means for his children to enjoy sex. He just wants us to enjoy that kind of intimacy and that kind of connection in the context of something called love, uh, in the context of where promises have been made and are being kept, in the context of covenant or commitment to one another. And, and it's always an interesting conversation when this stuff comes up, chiefly because what it does is it pits the wisdom of Jesus and the word of God with the wisdom of our culture. Pits them directly against one another, which they are. It pits our, our own sinful fleshly urges directly against the wisdom of Jesus and the wisdom of God. And it's, it's a conversation that highlights who or what a person is really pursuing. You know, are they pursuing God and Jesus, his kingdom, his righteousness, giving him glory, giving him honor? Is that why they're here? Is that what their life is about? Or are they pursuing their own personal happiness while disregarding what God says in his word? We sang in a chorus earlier how we were relying on the word of God. And the question, of course, is, well, are we? Are we really relying on the word of God? You know, what voices are we listening to? This is a question for all of us to ask. Are we taking counsel from the wicked? Are we standing in the way of sinners, meaning standing with them, agreeing with them? Are we sitting in the seat of mockers, people who make fun of how stupid the Bible is, Jesus is, Christianity is? It's the same issue, too, regardless whether we're talking about sexual ethics or Gender identity or economics, you know, what do I do with my resources, my money, my time, social justice? The question is, who informs my thinking? Who am I listening to on the important issues of life? God and his word or my culture? The Bible insists that if you seek to glorify God more than anything else, you will not only glorify God, you will also find happiness. You will actually get both. But if you seek personal happiness, personal pleasure, personal satisfaction, personal fulfillment in disobedience to God, I promise you, you will get neither. And that's the teaching of Psalm 1. The person who is happy is always the one who stopped trying so hard to be happy. 
And instead, they have taken the time to figure out some very, very important things, to answer some questions that every individual does answer intentionally or even unintentionally. Namely, who do I follow? Who is my God? Who do I trust and rely upon? Who will I obey? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of my favorite texts of scripture and you know Jesus has that section in the Sermon on the Mount where he he is really talking about this very issue he's encouraging people not to worry I know we don't have any worriers here at Deer Creek but uh, uh, Jesus says so so do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear in other words about how to make your life work right how to have your necessities yes but it's also how to be happy that's that's the subtext He says, the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, he says. That is a promise from Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If you do, God will take care of you. God will provide for you. God will bless you. But, but taking counsel from the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of mockers. In other words, going with the flow, drifting with your culture will not make you happy, friends. Not now and not in your future. In fact, it will lead to your destruction. Now, you could be wondering, well, does God even care about our happiness? Is that even a a concern? And let me answer that emphatically. Yes, he absolutely does. Psalm 1 is given to us precisely because God does care about our blessing, about our happiness. God tells us to delight in his law. He tells us to meditate in it day and night. He says, when you do, whatever you do then will prosper. There in verse 2, God wants us, his children, to prosper. That's true. It's just that it doesn't mean necessarily what our culture might define it as. Jesus told his disciples one time, he said, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Think about that. As the father loves Jesus, that's how Jesus loves you. Now remain in my love, he says. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus cares a great deal about our joy, our happiness. But notice again where it comes from. It actually comes from walking with him, listening to him, obeying his commands. It comes from godly living. It comes from abiding in him. It comes from being rooted and grounded in Jesus. The interesting irony in all of this, I think, is that the less you are concerned about your own individual joy and happiness, and the more you are concerned about honoring him, following him, obeying him, the happier you will be. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. Hear this, this, uh, this language, law of the, uh, law of the Lord it's not, it doesn't equate with rules, like, you know, get the rule book out. This is not so much describing a man who constantly dwells on the rules of the Bible. Law of the Lord is a frequent 
a phrase that occurs in the Old Testament in, in all of Scripture, uh, and it's actually referring to uh, meditating in, delighting in the, the, the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. This man in Psalm 1 is constantly meditating on the Bible, on Scripture, and so he is, he's getting to know God better and better and better. That's, that's what this is saying. His meditations are deepening his relationship, his connectedness to Almighty God. And as he meditates on God's law, he more and more understands the magnitude, you see, of just who God is and what God has done. This great and powerful God, the one we have offended, the one against whom we have sinned, sent his son to live and to die and then to live again for you and for me so that we could become his children, so that we could be blessed, so that we could live a life that matters, so that we could escape the corruption in us and the corruption in this world. And that message, when we meditate on it day and night, when we delight in it, that message is the stream, it is the river that keeps this tree's leaves green in any and every kind of season. The law of God, the word of God that we need to meditate on day and night, constantly and continually. What does it do? Well, it points us directly to Jesus. In fact, one of the names given to Jesus when you open the gospel of John is the word. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. Jesus, who, who is the gospel, he is the good news. The good news. He, he is who we must be rooted in. He is how we flourish. He is how we have life. And a life filled with joy. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. I feel like I've said that before. Now quickly, just in closing, I need to point out, because if I don't, I'm not doing justice to this psalm. This psalm is a psalm of contrast. You probably noticed. And it ends with a most severe warning. The first part of the psalm is good news for the man who's blessed. It says, a righteous man leads a life that is blessed. But then it says, not so the wicked. And the wicked here is just any, any person who scoffs at God, any person who doesn't trust in or believe in or rely upon the word of God, rely upon Jesus, not so the wicked. They, it says, are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. It's talking about when all people are, are resurrected, they're brought, they stand before God on the judgment day. There will be some there found in Christ and some there who have never sought to honor or listen to or put their faith or their trust in Jesus. The wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And that is absolutely true. You see, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. You've been given his righteousness. Your righteousness, not very valuable. It's like filthy rags, the Bible says. But the righteousness of Jesus, that's a perfect righteousness. If you have faith in him, you have his righteousness. And God is watching over you every step of the way. Even causing difficult, evil, hard uh, kinds of challenges that come into our life. Even taking those things and causing us to grow through them. Causing good to come of them. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked 
will perish. And the point is, be warned. You can mock or scoff if you like, but this psalm is warning us about that. See, this is a psalm of orientation. This is a psalm about the way things really are. And a day of judgment is coming, the Bible says. It's given unto man wants to die. After that, the judgment, the writer of Hebrews says. A day of judgment is coming. And we will either be found forgiven in Jesus, in Christ, and recipients of his righteousness. And we will therefore be blessed, blessed for all eternity. Or according to the writer of this psalm, we will perish. So I, I, I would just plead with you. If you haven't taken the time to understand who Jesus is, why he came, what he did when he died on a cross, you need to. You need to, lest you perish. The good news, and I hope it's encouraging to you, is that if you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your life can be a blessed life. Sink your roots down deeper and deeper and deeper into the soil where you'll find everything you need for every season of life. Sink your roots down deeply into the soil of Jesus Christ himself. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the writer of this psalm. We are given insight and we are told and we are taught how life actually is working and going to work. And I pray, Father, that we as Followers of Jesus would learn more and more to rely upon the Word, to rely upon Scripture, to rely upon uh, the truth that we find in this book, the Bible versus the counsel of the wicked, versus the directions and inclinations of our culture. And it just seems like, Father, uh, things perhaps are even moving in a, a, a direction uh, where it's going to become more challenging, maybe more difficult to take a stand and say, no, this is who I follow. This is the one in whom I believe. This is my Savior. This is who I will obey. Give us your grace, God, to sink our roots down deeply into the truth of your word, the truth of Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.